Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. This isn't how the episode is supposed to start, but so last episode or few episodes ago or whenever I said that Will was going to have a work trip that was going to take him around the world in about 18 days, I said there might not even be an interruption and you might not notice that we're gone. Well, I'm kind of sad, but I'm also glad that we didn't push it. We did not record the episode that comes after this, which we were planning on doing, mostly because Packing for a three-week-long trip, plus me coming to join later on, meant that we spent more energy on just prep work than we anticipated, and we looked at each other and said, I don't feel like recording. Both of us read the section, both of us were prepared, I think I had a seven-word sentence, and that just didn't happen. So... The episode that would have been scheduled for October 24th is just going to be missing. No way around that. We didn't have a recording session. And even if I did it all by myself, I really don't have time to do editing. And if you could hear what I'm rambling on about right now with no cuts, you'd understand why we need editing (laughs) or I need editing. Anyway, this is not stuff you need to know about or want to hear about you want into the episode and also probably would appreciate a heads up on when the next one will come out. So if I'm right, this episode that you are listening to right now came out on October 10th. We are missing the 24th, so that means we will hopefully get you a new episode on November 7th. I know that sounds so far away. I really hope we get a recording in. (laughs) Anyway, very sorry. We love all of our listeners and all of our fans. And I just really appreciate each and every one of you that has reached out and said hi. If you would like to do that, we do have a Discord. Again, I realize right now that you probably want to stop listening to me ramble at 5 a.m. a week before this comes out and would rather listen to the episode. So that's what we're going to do. TTFN, back to past me and Will. Have a good day. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, where we're taking a break from The Wise Man's Fear to discuss Patrick Rothfuss's Bast-centric short story, The Lightning Tree. This story first appeared in the 2014 anthology Rogues, edited by George R. R. Martin and Gardner Dojoy, and it's going to receive a standalone expanded release in November called The Narrow Road Between Desires. Given that, we figured it'd be fun to spend a few episodes talking about this original version so that we have something to compare the full release to later this autumn. Hope you enjoy. All right, quick explanation of the pod, as per usual. However, this is going to be a little bit different from our normal format as we're just looking at a chunk of the lightning tree. This is the second episode of looking at chunks of the lightning tree. And then we'll be discussing it more generally. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. And before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books, nor the publisher of Rogues, which is Bantam. Also, we're spoiling this entire story. You have been warned. Also, word to our community, be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. All right, let's dive back in. So when last we left off, Bast had been spying on a shepherdess in the fields and had hidden his copy of Kellum Tintore in the crook of a tree. Spied is a little underselling it, I think. I honestly think that what he did as a fake creature is he made himself those pipes out of the reeds and he used his music to subtly manipulate the scene in front of him and the person he was spying on. Because 
it reads a little like a peep show, but like a very chaste peep show and more cute, more flirtatious. It's a flirtatious burlesque. And I don't think any of it is explicit and I don't think any of it is beyond what you would see from a Fae story really crossing those lines of what consent and it doesn't read to me like something that is ooky. It reads to me like something that is supposed to be cute and flirtatious and doesn't strictly strip the object of Bast's desires from her humanity. Yeah, she still has choices and she is responding to things in her environment of her own volition. Or manipulated so that they're thought to be of her own volition. So let's move on to what's going to happen this week. We're going to get sort of a, a little bit of an inversion of that. And then we'll also get a bit of exposition about the Fae. Picking up where we left off, Bast goes back to the lightning tree and he does a little bit of a check around it to see if a certain working is still intact. And it still is. So I'm curious what that might be. Are you thinking it's a ward? Are you thinking it's a summoning? Do you think that it's some sort of protection against good and evil? Um, I mean, it could be literally any of those or hundreds of other things, but there's clearly some enchantment that Bast is working or protecting. We don't know what it does just yet, but there is clearly significance to it. So let's stick a pin in that. Another thing that I note that I'm not sure if you glossed over on purpose because it just doesn't interest you or if you glossed over it because it didn't seem to make any difference in the story. But I think because this series itself is so tied in with theories and theory crafting and kind of all those what clues can we glean from this story to tell us about our main story? When he returns to the tree, he mentions that there are greystones nearby, that there are no children waiting for him. And I'm wondering, because I have thought this before, are the greystones kind of like, I know you don't like the movie The Labyrinth, but I don't care. I'm going to reference it anyway. When Sarah is going through the maze at the beginning and can't see any branches off of the main path, and then the little worm is like, oh, you just need to know where to look for them. Are the Greystones kind of a transit between our world and the Fae? I've had similar thoughts. We know that they clearly have some significance to the Fae. And every time Greystones have appeared within the story, there has been a narrative significance to them. It's where Kvothe and Denna share a night together and have a major confrontation with the Dracus. It's where Quoth's family have their fateful encounter with the Chandrian. It's where all of these big moments happen. And they're seemingly random as far as where they exist in the world, but there does seem to be a pattern that none of them are insignificant. And I think even if they aren't themselves the gateway to the Fey Realms, they could very well be a marker that people placed to denote that, yeah, there's a gateway nearby here. It's kind of a chicken and an egg situation. Maybe, or like it's a signpost. Like they are not themselves the gateway, but they mark where it is. If the gates are otherwise invisible, you would think that maybe that's the sort of thing that early travelers might want to note out to say, hey, there's a weird invisible thing here you might find yourself transported into another world if you're not careful. Here's the marker. So a warning system. Yeah, or just a highway sign. Fair enough. So then he feigns sleep under the tree, almost like he's baiting children to come and wake him up. So yeah, I think Bast's motivations here are not strictly speaking profit. I think Bast does a lot of this stuff because... It's almost like it's in his nature, like being a trickster, being a prankster, an information broker, all of this, it feels like is stuff that he does because when he does it, he feels most like himself, if that makes sense. And he clearly seems to enjoy these sorts of things. And I think he kind of enjoys being sort of the fun uncle slash big brother figure to all these kids. What do you mean by these sorts of things? 
he's the weird advice giver and he is the accomplice in all of the troublemaking that the local kids get up to. I think in a lot of ways, tricksters are portrayed as more juvenile, which is why they get along better with children or that they are enchanting to children. Yeah, well, and tricksters are fundamentally on the side of the little guy. Like the trickster archetype is always someone who is seen by the world at large as being smaller, weaker, somehow of lesser status. And, you know, for a kid, that's you. Like the adults are all bigger than you. The adults are all stronger than you. Theoretically, they're all smarter than you. At least they talk like they are. Or at least they treat you like they ought to be. Yeah. Or that you ought to treat them like they are. They think they are. Right. Though my classic example is having an argument when I was a teenager with an adult who swore to me that the word genre was not a word. Not all adults are smarter than all children. Oh, almost certainly not. But... Society certainly favors the adult over the child in most of these sorts of scenarios by default. So I have a question for you. Clearly, other characters that fit into this trickster archetype include characters like Loki. Do you have any others? So we have Coyote from Native American myth. We've got Athena in Greek myth is kind of a trickster of sorts, although one who generally is more respected. Anansi. Anansi is also a trickster. And then within the realm of more modern fantasies, the hobbits. Like Bilbo is a trickster. Like his whole deal is, like he's not even necessarily one who sets out to be a trickster, but all of his victories happen mostly through cleverness and cunning and people underestimating him. Then in the Lord of the Rings trilogy proper, you've got Well, Frodo isn't really a trickster so much, but Pippin and Merry definitely are. They have that trickster feel to them. And to an extent, so does Gandalf. Gandalf is a trickster. He loves illusions. He likes to play with fireworks. He likes to put on a show. And he also is not above a little bit of deception. He's not above letting people think that he's just a harmless old man. You know, he uses his elderly appearance to take people in. Like, you witness how he gets past all the guards in the halls of Theoden. He says, oh, you don't want to take an old man's walking stick, would you? You know, he plays up that old man angle quite a bit, even as he's quite powerful in his own right. You know, and then in, you know, if we look at more contemporary, within Wheel of Time, Matt Cawthon is a classic trickster archetype. And we also kind of get sort of a uh, recontextualizing of Norse mythology and American gods, where Odin, in the form of Mr. Wednesday, is the arch trickster, just as much as Loki, if not more so. Also in Sandman, yep, we've got Loki as a character. However, Loki himself is not actually Loki. <laughs> it's complicated. Yes. And the Sandman. I mean, Morpheus is something of a trickster as well. Though he doesn't have kind of that gleeful maliciousness. But he works indirectly through illusions, through enchantments, and through possibilities. And he clearly has a certain affinity for tricksters as well. Also, I think that Neil Gaiman has a certain affinity for tricksters. Yeah. Let's go outside of the fantasy genre a little bit and take a look at superheroes. Spider-Man is a trickster. Like, he has to win mostly through cleverness, and his whole thing is spinning webs, and... (laughs) I think that you get a little more of that in the comics than you do necessarily, or even in video games, more than you would in the movies. And the reason is because in the movies, they kind of have to draw characters as silhouettes that are easy to identify between one another. So you almost have... Star-Lord taking up that trickster, benevolent trickster, where you do definitely have Loki as the more probably malevolent trickster. Yeah. I think Star-Lord is a great example of a contemporary trickster existing outside of the fantasy genre. 
at least as he is portrayed in the movies. I'll also say that if we look again into anything that involves heists, like any heist movie or book, loads of tricksters. I think that those movies and stories in general are just chock full of tricksters to the point where it's really hard to give them each their distinct personality. But they're each a particular type of trickster. So this guy is the computer trickster. This guy is the disguise trickster. This one is the fast talking trickster. This one is the acrobatic trickster. Like There is also that connection between circus folk almost and trickster archetypes. Well, there's an element of whimsy to it. There's an element of showmanship. Tricksters tend to be a little bit morally gray. And also can fall into the swindler. Swindlers are a darker version of a trickster. You know, like con artists. It's all really fun when you're just looking at this elaborate trick that they're pulling off, when you're looking at it in a vacuum. But then when you think about people who actually get hurt. To bring up a rather old contemporary reference Sawyer in Lost like you get the people who are con artists in New York or even thinking about Denna right who plays the con artist a lot like she knows all the tricks she knows how to kind of swindle money out of these people who are easily manipulated by the sight of a pretty lady yep she's a bit of a trickster Kvothe almost certainly is a trickster. We look at the way that he is constantly playing Tom and Jerry with Ambrose, for instance. So Jerry. Yeah. Elodin certainly has a bit of that trickster element as well. Witness his <laughs> burning Master Hem's apartments. There's certainly a trickster element. I get the impression that a lot of trickster characters are also a little out there and eccentric, like more so than you would see from real life people. Yeah, that's why we tell stories about them. We don't tell stories about the person who is so boring and did nothing exciting. These are people who transgress societal mores all the time. And these are people who also are able to oftentimes use their smaller stature you know, the things that people might overlook to their advantage through cleverness, through cunning. And oftentimes they do it with a sense of humor. Tyrion. Yeah, Tyrion is another trickster type. They're charming. Even when they're doing stuff that we don't approve of, they're just so damn charming. <laughs> they have charisma. So I think there's that element to Bast. And children like tricksters because while... A child might have to grow up and get very big and strong to be a powerful warrior. Or they might have to study long and hard to be a great wizard. Anybody could become a trickster. Like, there's no degree in it. There's not much more than just being careful and observing the people around you. And an element of charm and an element of cleverness and quick thinking. Yeah, and for a particularly clever kid, they look at a trickster and they say, I could do that. I don't have to have a title. I don't have to have money, but I could get money. That just reminds me of all of the people that go around at art fairs and say, I don't need to buy that. I could do that. I could make that. But will you? You don't have the time. Or the skill. Yeah. Or the money. Because honestly, they're charging you less than they should. Quite often. Why buy something for $30 when you can spend $460 making it yourself? Right. And that's not even taking into the hours of time that you're going to have to put into that as well. And who knows what your bill rate is. Right. I mean, for yourself? Nope. Witness our room. Yeah. We would not be able to pay anyone to have done what I did. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. After about an hour of snoozing next to the tree, Bast is woken up by that hesitant kind of soft walking that you kind of get when you're like, I know I shouldn't be here and I know I'm disturbing the adult, but I'm I, I just very carefully. I don't want to be too much of a nuisance, but I want him to wake up. And 
that brings him out of his slumber. And so this is Costrel, one of the local kids that Bass seems to know fairly well and seems to hold with a certain degree of respect. And Costrel comes bearing a secret. He knows where one of the local girls takes her bath. Creepy. I mean, okay, so the attempt to make it less creepy is by the fact that these kids are generally prepubescent. So it kind of somewhat takes the sexual overtones out. And yet here is Bast, who is the nominal adult in this scenario. <laughs> who is lustful. Yes. I'm not in love with this part because essentially Bast and Costrel have a back and forth that I think is playful and I think is somewhat cute, but is also degrading as fork. Because they're debating who the prettiest girls in town are and what number prettiest the one that Costrel has seen bathing is. Yeah, it kind of feels like that old hot or not site back in like the early aughts. It feels like the she's a 10, but. Yeah, yeah, it it's it's not a good look. No, especially when they start just talking about people's physical attributes and not talking about the women as people. Yeah. But I digress. That's Costrel's secret, and he thinks it's valuable enough to convince Bast to talk to him about any topic that he would like to talk about and get three full answers, and I quote, with no equivocating or bullshittery. That bit is actually pretty amusing to me. This is someone who's clearly thought about how to get more wishes out of a genie. Yes. <laughs> and then... Bast retorts with, so long as the questions are focused and specific. No, tell me everything you know about X. And then the kid responds, but that's not a question, so that doesn't count. And that earns Bast's respect. The kid chooses the topic, the Fae. And that gets Bast a little nervous, because he knows that Costrel's a clever kid. What does Costrel understand? What has he figured out? This is almost like a spit take. Yeah, and he's just like, uh-oh. And then he's like, why do you want to know? And why do you want me to tell you about this? And Costrel's answer is, because you're not from around here. Clearly, he's not from around here. But Costrel has not yet figured out how far away he's from. At least we think so. And Bass starts to get a little nervous, because then he's like, uh-oh. This could lead to some dangerous questions if I'm not careful. More dickering happens, more conversation that is ensuring that Bast won't just pull one over on the kid. Although, spoilers, he pulls one over on the kid. A little bit. Although he does manage to give away some fairly good information about the Fae themselves, and specifically how the Fae see themselves. The kid asks, what are the Fae like? <laughs> and Bast's response are like, well, that's kind of ridiculous they're like themselves you can't just lump an entire group of people into one description right he's like you may as well just ask what are people like i mean you can find all kinds of people all over the world and even just within your own communities on top of that the fey encompasses people it encompasses land it encompasses plants and other creatures and locations just like it's not tell me what all fake creatures are like is such a useless thing and you'd be sitting there having to write a book about it and i love how the kid is just unimpressed by that and he just says so write me a book <laughs> and bath does counter and is able to focus the kid's question a little bit better and then we get a little bit about Grammary versus glamoury, which is actually pretty apropos considering we were just talking about Felurian and how she used glamoury to affect herself and then grammoury in the business of making the shade. And in fact, the kid references Quoth's Cloak of Shadow, because clearly this is a bit of Quoth's legend that has made its way around. Although Bast naturally is a little bit hesitant to get too deep into this because he knows that that's not his story to tell. But he also knows that it's real. Yep. That it's not just legend. 
And if we've learned anything about Quoth, Quoth does not like other people telling his story. Well, he does and he doesn't. He likes seeding rumors, but he doesn't want people telling his actual, quote, actual, honest-to-goodness, quote, story. Right. He doesn't want people telling his true story. Quote, we don't even know if what he's telling to Chronicler and Bast is his true story. I think it is, if not literally true, it is the one that is true to how Quoth sees himself more than anything else. The lies that are in it are lies that he tells himself, but they're things that he genuinely believes. After some discussion of whittling down the question to a more focused one, Bast and Kostrel have an interesting conversation, just going over some of the finer points about the Fae. Bast confirms that much like the human world has dogs and squirrels and bears, the Fae has Rom and Dinnerlings, and then he's interrupted by the kid saying, and Trow? And I'm not sure how to take this. Bast nods and says, and Trow, they're real. Bast is a sarcastic little creature, and I do not know if the answer is, they're actually real, face value, or shut up, kid. Another cool thing here is we get the introduction of this narrow road between desires where he starts talking a little bit about the nature of the Fae, of particularly the sentient Fae. You know, some of them can't tell lies. Some of them have to honor deals. Some are bound by both. Some are bound by neither. He muses internally about how he feels happiest when he is upholding deals. But he also has his own desires that sometimes compete with this. So he's always having to negotiate how to fit into the one while also fulfilling those desires that he has. In this case, desires can mean literally just anything. You know, sometimes it is for pleasure. Sometimes it is for a certain kind of satisfaction. Sometimes it is just curiosity. He talks about how it used to be simple. You wanted a thing and you just have it. You went and got it. And as he's spent more time in the world, in the, the mortal realm, the more he's found himself in these compromised positions where he will have two desires that run at cross purposes to one another, where he will have two competing mandates or dictates that on surface seem to be in direct contradiction to one another. So he has to find loopholes or weird compromises, things to navigate these that are a little more complicated. And I think that kind of also speaks to just the nature of growing up. You know, when you're a child, if you want a cookie, you work to get the cookie, right? It's as simple as that. When you are an adult, you want the cookie, but you also want to have a complete meal. And you also need to worry about watching calorie counts or you need to limit your sugar intake because you know that you want to have greater overall pleasures in your life. Marshmallow test. Literally, the marshmallow test is a classic example of that. And, you know, especially it can get into that sense where you're forever holding back on momentary pleasures for a tomorrow that may or may not come. Well, let's think about this a little bit in our world, our little tiny corner of the world or whatever. For the past eight years, we have wanted to get replica lightsabers. So long that I have changed my mind because new ones came out at the company that we wanted to buy them from. Like, oh dear lord, how old is Fallen Order? That's uh, a four-year-old game at this point. Right. So I changed halfway through which one I wanted, and I still agonized because we had goals. We had, we wanted to buy a house goals. We had some other issues of having to pay off certain things. We had to make sure that we were in a good financial situation. And then we looked at certain purchases like our electric guitars, which cost more than a lightsaber and go, but which one do we want now? Because you can't 
have literally everything that you want. Even though when you're a child, you're thinking, when I'm an adult, I can have whatever I want. And when you get to be an adult, you're like, I can have maybe some of the things I want and others I may have to wait on or I may have to trade. I'll have to compromise or I'll never be able to have the thing, whatever. You won't always be able to have what you want. Now, factor in those of you who do have children and you're going, but I have wants, but my child has wants and I have to provide both of those things. How self-sacrificing do I have to be? Right. It's a challenge. I think there is something to this whole idea of as you become more integrated into the world, as you become more a part of it, it gets harder to balance all of these and to navigate that narrow road between desires. Hey, that's the name of the next book. It is. And I think it's a good thing to talk about because I think this is Bast recognizing that he doesn't live a carefree life with no obligations. The more deals he makes, the more things he's bound by. The more things that he agrees to do, the more constrained he is. Each thing that he acquires becomes an additional constraint. He's not bound in the sense that he is supernaturally obligated to follow through on his deals. It's just that he really doesn't like to break those deals. <laughs> and so he tells his first secret. Many of the Fae do not ever come to our world. They don't like it. It feels like wearing a burlap sack. Rubs them wrong. And I wonder if he feels that way here. Kind of, you know, not to get too personal, but kind of the way that I don't like wearing tight clothing, including bras. I hate it. Absolutely super, super hate it. But I wear them in certain situations because society kind of looks at you funny if you don't. If you're assigned female at birth or if you have boobs. I suspect that he probably does feel a little trapped here and uncomfortable because... He can't really reveal himself. He can't be himself. And like the only way he's happy is if he is honoring these constraints that he has created for himself to live here. Everything comes with a trade in this world. It's not like in the Fae where he can just reach out and do something. So I think there's some of that too. Bast gives a second secret. The Fae folk look almost like what we do, but not exactly. It might be that there is something weird about their eyes or their ears or the color of their hair or skin. Sometimes they're taller than normal or shorter or stronger or more beautiful. And hi, Costrel, just goes like Florian. Yeah, like Florian. <laughs> Shut up, kid. <laughs> like if Bast is not like a child of Florian in some way, shape or form, Bast who reminds me a lot in description of like Pan. Yeah, he has the goat hooves and everything. Another trickster. It's possible that like Florian's a sister or a cousin or a, some relation. And it's kind of like when you're scrolling through Instagram showing one of your friends something you're interested in and they see a picture of your cousin and they're like, who's that? And you're like, no, <laughs> do not be interested in my cousin. Right. Kind of like that. Yeah. They also have a little bit of a talk about how Felurian is an example of grammary and glamoury combined. Like, so the grammary here that gets talked about is not so much making something into something that it is not, but rather enhancing it to be the best version of it, of what it already is. So the simple kind of differentiation between the two is glamoury is an illusion where grammary is a change. So a glamoury might be to hide those little things that put the fae into the uncanny valley, right? The eyes that are too big, the ears that are too long, the skin that is just the wrong shade. The goat hooves. The goat hooves, yes. <laughs> All of those little things and put something on it to make you think that it's something different. Grammary, on the other hand, physically changes the actual thing somewhat permanently. And really what it seems like is it's changing in degree, but not kind. So like Bass gives the example of a knife. 
he compares his knife with the knife that the boy has. And as far as the boy is concerned, Costrel's knife is the best ever. Because it was his dad's. It means something to him. It's got sentimental weight to it. Whereas Bast's, while by most objective measures, is probably a nicer knife. But Grammary would be taking a knife and making it so that it feels to everyone the way Costrel's knife feels to him. So it's imbuing these objects with that extra sentimental weight almost and that connection that makes them feel more real than just something that, while objectively a good object, maybe feels a little more impersonal. Bast also knows, though, that this is a very slippery slope of discussion because Costrel could easily tip from being, what is this, to being, how do I do this? Or how do I break this? And Bast has some very dark thoughts about, well, I could be honest and then kill the kid. But he doesn't want to do that. He likes the kid. He respects Costrel's cleverness. And he also, again, he feels like, okay, if I'm honest with him, it's going to be really hard. I also want to be honest with him. I don't want to hide something from this kid because I do like him. I also know that if he gets too close to the truth of who I am, it could go really badly for me. And for him. Yeah. If it goes badly for me, it will go doubly bad for him. Yep. And the kid notices Bast having this existential crisis. It's just like, are you all right? And at that point, Bast decides how he's going to handle this because he knows the kid has like one more question. He tricks the kid into asking a different question. He starts throwing seeds out there, things that are meant to spark additional questions, but they go in a particular direction. And at first the kid is like, I'm not going to be tricked because he is a clever kid. But that doesn't last very much longer. What finally is Costrel's downfall is they're having a conversation and having a whole lot of just pattering back and forth. And they're in a rhythm. So Bass says, this is the stuff that I've heard. The one that I met. And he stops abruptly and he snaps his mouth shut, which instantly baits the kid. Have you met one of the Fae? And Bast just answers yes. That's three. <laughs> and the kid is just like, you bastard. What? Wait, what? You tricked me into asking that. And Bast is like, yeah, I did. It was a question related to the subject and I answered it fully without equivocation. <laughs> and Costrel's like, he gets up, he storms off, comes back and he's like, give me my penny back. <laughs> And then they dicker about whether or not the kid's going to sell the information about where Imberly, that's the name of the girl that is taking her bath out, you know, in the stream. And I think to me, this reads a little like Bast being an upstanding person where he's like, you can't sell this to anybody else. You can't go. You don't get to ogle her. You don't encourage anyone else to ogle her. It could be. And you kind of get the sense that while Bast may be playing up his lascivious reputation here, he may also be genuinely saying, okay, let's just put the kibosh on this. Right. Let's let the girls bathe in private. So after this, Bast himself goes out for a bit of a stroll. and It plays like he's going to go watch Emberly bathe, but... Instead, he goes to a different stream and proceeds to put on a show of his own. And the narrator obviously takes time to lovingly describe Bast's chiseled physique. <laughs> Bare-chested, Bast walked out onto the rough jut of stone. This feels like something out of a shampoo commercial. It really does. <laughs> like a shampoo commercial under a running waterfall. Right, you know, with like rivulets of water running down bare skin. <laughs> And it's, I think, more descriptive of Bast and of his kind of eye candy everything. Like, it turns out there are some girls that are watching him. And he takes great effort to play it off as obviously those are probably birds or butterflies and not girls dressed in cute, colorful skirts. And obviously everyone knows that the boy who works at the inn is famously nearsighted and probably couldn't tell. And so he plays it off like he's totally oblivious. 
but he knows what he's doing. We know he does. But he's clearly enjoying showing off for them, <laughs> which is much in the same way that he kind of imagines the shepherdess. He himself kind of takes on that same seemingly innocent role. There's also a few mentions of things like beneath the water, a careful observer might notice a young man's legs looked somewhat odd, but it was shady there. And everyone knows that water bends light strangely, making things look other than they are. And besides, birds are not the most careful of observers, especially when their attention is focused elsewhere. Yes. The reason that I think that this story works is that it's not all about Bast staring at half-naked or unwilling young ladies. We also objectify the crap out of Bast. And he is happy to play along with it. He has agency in it. And I also don't think that the girls don't have agency. And in fact, we don't actually know if the playful little scene with the shepherdess is completely consensual. It could be. Yeah. Well, after an hour of this... That is a long time to bathe in a stream. Streams are cold, guys. <laughs> <laughs> after an hour of this, Bast leaves the stream slightly damp and smelling of sweet honeysuckle soap, which you gotta figure is also not very good for the poor little fishies in the stream. Probably not. That's just basically a lie. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, he climbs a bluff to where he was fairly certain he'd left his master's book, which if Quoth knew that that was what was going on, he would be apoplectic. This is the third tree up a bluff that he has searched because he's really not sure where he left the book. Nor does he particularly care all that much about it. But he finally did find the right tree. And instead of the book, he finds a note. Very badly spelled, but it comes out to, I need to talk to you. It's important. Signed, Reich. It was written on a smooth stretch of birch bark. And this alludes to the idea that the town folk aren't exactly literate. Well, keep in mind, it's not like there's a school in town or a large school. It's not like they can just go to a university and this is a child. So a lot of it is spelling things out. Well, what I would say is that it's also a child that is being taught by other people, older people who didn't learn to read or write. And it's also in an isolated community where linguistic drift can happen pretty readily. And standardized spelling is actually a relatively novel thing, even within English. Like, Spelling in the English language didn't really get standardized until Samuel Johnson's dictionary in like the 1800s. Like that was a new thing. Even now, I rely very heavily on autocorrect. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of having a prescriptive set of spellings is a relatively recent thing. For the vast majority of human history, spelling was basically people sounding it out. And so you had all sorts of regional differences in how things were spelled because they were spoken differently. And it wasn't really about what was, quote, correct, but what people were able to read it as. So if they read it spelled out and were able to divine the actual meanings, that was good enough. So, I mean, it's not that he's illiterate or that he's bad at spelling. It's just that they're in a society or in a part of the world where standardized spelling just isn't a thing. I would counter that with it's probably both. Yeah. Why not both? Fair. One thing of note before we stop for the day. Bast mentions that he saw something white and he felt a sudden chill, fearing it was a page torn from the book. Few things angered his master like a mistreated book. Quoth, who took a lit candle into the archives. <laughs> yeah. In a section of the book, I still fast forward through and have a hard time actually reading. Yes. Well, both can have grown. One would hope. Character growth. It's a good thing. It happens. So that it is time for us to do seven words. 
today I have from the book, and you are very kind to send me a selection because I am listening to the book, whereas you have the actual physical copy and can read and count. Yes. So the ones that you sent me, not just for them, but for anyone. And I'm not sure what the reference to that is. That was when he was talking about the best knife. Ah, gotcha. How might a young boy break it? As in, how might a young boy break glamoury or grammary? I have to be somewhere come noon. I'm tempted to choose this because we actually have to be somewhere come one, which is why we're doing this early in the morning on a Friday, because we have Rose City Comic Con to go to. But because I find it so enchanting and he's done this twice now, what have you got in your pockets? I like that seven word sentence. It's just evocative of the Lord of the Rings and it is just past the equinox right now and that brings me a lot of joy. The Lord of the Rings is just a very autumnal story for me. Same. I love it. So you have seven words from our lives. I do. Here, let me get that up here. What have you got? So mine is perfect is the enemy of the done. (laughs) It is a mantra that we have had to repeat to ourselves over the past three weeks as we've been working on remodeling our bedroom. And you reach a certain point where you're doing a lot of extra work to cover a whole bunch of little teeny tiny details and you're doing more and more work for less and less return and you can always find more work to do but if at a certain point you don't just say good enough you will never finish right and i appreciated every single time you're like we could do this a third time we could make a third coat of paint on this wall no (laughs) Yeah, it's a thing we could do, but we would never be done because there'd be more things that we would discover as part of this and then we'd never get it done. Let's just wrap it up. (laughs) And here's the thing. This is true of everything that you see. Everything will have small flaws to it. It'll have small little bits of imperfections here and there. And while the people who made it could, if they so desired, spend a lot of time and effort making it so that those particular flaws and imperfections did not exist. In so doing, they would introduce additional flaws and imperfections that they could then spend additional time making sure that those don't exist while introducing yet further ones. And then they would never be done. They would never be able to release the thing. They would never be able to put that thing out into the wild. They would never be able to actually use the thing. You would never get another Bethesda game in your life. Or any game. That's true. You would not get any game. You would not get any piece of software. You would not get any physical good. You would not get any piece of art. You would not get any written works. You wouldn't get anything. Like, you wouldn't even get things like songs. You'd never get a song, ever. Because everyone would be continually trying to do it perfectly and they'd never actually finish the song. And it's one thing to say, okay, I made a mistake in this thing and next time I have the opportunity, I will learn from this and not make this particular mistake. But I guarantee you, you'll make a completely different mistake the next time. Like, so one of my favorite performance reviews (laughs) that I ever received, my boss says, Yeah, Will is our best at this job, not because he never makes mistakes, but because he never makes the same mistake twice. He finds new and interesting ways to make mistakes each time. (laughs) And yeah, (laughs) that's life. You got to get used to that. And, you know, that kind of stuck with me that, yeah, you can learn from your mistakes. You don't have to repeat them. You will make new ones and you'll learn from those. But, you know, when it comes to actually delivering a thing, you're going to have to live with some imperfections and you'll have to say, are these things that stop me from actually using it for its intended purpose? Are these things that seriously detract from what I want to do with this object or this experience? And once you hit a certain point, you just say, yeah, that that isn't actually going to make a difference. That's not going to make enough of a difference that it 
is warranting the time it takes to do it. Right. We could have gone over the spackle more. Could have. But we really didn't need to. Right. It looks fine. And it was all in the back of a closet that is closed most of the time. And hidden underneath a new closet system. I mean, at a certain point, you just say, good enough is good enough. And the perfect is the enemy of the done. Yeah. And you move on and enjoy what you've done. Exactly. You just can't torture yourself over that. So that's been kind of our our mantra on all of this. So, yeah. And with that, we are done with this episode. And I would like to thank you for potting with me. And thanks for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we continue our break from the wise man's fear with a few more chunks of the lightning tree. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination as much as it is, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me. Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, and I stress have the means to do so because seriously, we're fine. Please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepot. But even better than that, join our Discord. We actually really like talking with all of you and sharing memes and sharing photos of our cat. And swapping stories and telling jokes and just generally having a good time. So yeah. We do enjoy talking with our fans on the Discord, and so we look forward to seeing you there. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. So when last we left off, Bass had gone for a bit of a stroll and spied on a little shepherdess out in the fields. Don't say little. Yeah, that's creepy. <laughs> oh my God, that's creepy. No. 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 No.